Well, my name is Brian. I'm the pastor of discipleship here. It's my privilege to open up the Word with you. So we're going we're gonna to do that. We're going to continue studying the Gospel of Matthew, which we've been doing for a little bit now. So if you want to turn there, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 22. And uh, we're also going to have the verses up on the screen above as well. So if you want to turn there, Matthew 12, verse 22. Let me read the Word of God. Then a demon-oppressed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to him. This is Jesus. And he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? When the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks." The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Let's take a moment and pray. Our Father, we thank you for these words, and we pray that you would now prepare us to hear them. I pray that you would cut open our hearts, that you would cause us to take seriously what you have spoken, and that in doing so, it might point us toward the grace you've shown us in Christ. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Whenever you get to a passage about demons or Satan, you enter into tricky territory. And I think for most of us, we rightly would want to avoid casting all the blame on Satan for things that we do, right? The devil made me do it. No, you just made a terrible decision, right? We don't want to cast off responsibility. We don't want to be superstitious and act as though Satan is hiding around every corner waiting to scare us. But though we rightly would want to avoid that kind of mentality, I think we are going to struggle with the other equal error 
of acting as though Satan has no bearing on us at all, as though he does not affect the world at all, as though he does not exist. But I think, considering recent events in the world, with the the conflict in Israel and all of the, the horrific things we hear, we're confronted again with the depravity of humanity. We're confronted again with the reality that darkness pervades this world. And it can't simply be boiled down to chemicals and equations. It can't simply be explained away by a lack of education or a lack of resources or finances or a lack of positive role models. There's something more substantial at work. And when we talk about a kingdom of darkness, when we talk about Satan and fallen angels and evil spirits, To our Western minds, our enlightened minds, it seems so juvenile and so unsophisticated, so beneath us. And yet, that may be the way that Satan tempts us the most. There's a famous movie quote that says this, the greatest greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. In other words, Satan's goal is not to get us to shriek in horror at the mere mention of his name. He is simply satisfied for us to roll our eyes, to act as though he doesn't exist. But to scoff at the reality of Satan and the demonic realm and the kingdom of darkness is to deny the heart of Jesus' work. We we know why the Son of Man came. He came to die to forgive sins. He came to show us what it means to truly worship God. He came to bring healing and restoration and hope to the world But he also came to do this. This is 1 John 3.8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came as a demon slayer. Jesus came to slay Satan, to destroy his works. And that is fundamental to the gospel message. And the earliest Christians understood this. Their early baptismal vows, the the church father Tertullian records them. He says, when we are going to enter the water, but a little before, we solemnly profess that we disown the devil and his pomp and his angels. They recognize that to follow Christ is simultaneously to turn away from Satan and his works, to renounce him, to cast aside allegiance to darkness and sin and death and and the dominion of Satan, and to follow Christ, to be transferred, as Colossians 1, 13, 14 says, from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So right there in Colossians, the forgiveness of sins and the redemption that we have is tied inseparably to the liberation from the dominion of Satan over our lives. And it's been said that maybe in prior generations, the great struggle was with physical sickness. But in our generation... It is with spiritual sickness. We are spiritually sick and decaying. And unless we recapture this understanding of the gospel's liberation from the forces of darkness, we will continue in our spiritual decay. And so I think in this passage, we see this glorious truth that Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. And if that's true, then we must renounce him in our lives as a church. I think there's three key truths to help us do that. First, we must recognize that Jesus came to plunder Satan's kingdom. Second, he came to punish satanic blasphemy. And third, 
to condemn satanic words. Look at that first point. Jesus came to plunder Satan's kingdom. This whole section begins with a demon-oppressed man. He's blind and mute, and Jesus casts out the demon, as he's done multiple times before this, and it results in his physical healing. He's delivered. He is no longer blind and mute, but now he can see and he can speak. And this miracle prompts a reaction from the crowd. It prompts them to ask the question, is this the son of David? Now, why would that reaction be what they say? Why, why is that causing them to think about the son of David? Well, in the Old Testament, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one whom God sends to save Israel, is referred to as one who comes in the line of David. He is an heir of David. He is a royal heir. He's going to assume the throne of David. And not only that, but he will be anointed with the Spirit of God himself to do battle, to win back this kingdom, to establish this kingdom of righteousness. And so we see the very beginning of Jesus' ministry happens in the Jordan River when the Spirit descends upon him like a dove. And don't let that dove imagery fool you. This is the anointing of the royal king preparing him for battle. He is putting on the armor of the Spirit. The Spirit is descending upon him to empower him to wage a holy war against the demons and evil spirits that have infiltrated the land. And so Jesus anointed with the Spirit, enters in, and that's what he does. He's casting out demons by word, by his authority. And his declaration that the kingdom is near, right? He says, if you see the Spirit of God upon me doing these works, you know the kingdom of God is upon you. And that is simultaneously a declaration of war against the kingdom of Satan. That as the kingdom advances, it is advancing over that kingdom of darkness. And so, there is a kingdom that comes by force, just not physical force. It comes by spiritual force. Jesus comes, the Son of God, the Son of David, armed with the Spirit. And this war climaxes when, when Jesus binds the strong man. He says, I came to bind the strong man that I might plunder his house. Right? He's saying that the house, if I'm going to take what's in his house, I have to first bind the person who's guarding it. And the strong man here is Satan. Satan has dominion over the household of the world, and Jesus comes to dethrone him, to cast him down through his death and resurrection. This is what Jesus says in John 12, verses 31 to 33. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And so Jesus connects his death and resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of the Father, his enthronement as simultaneously, again, a dethronement of Satan. That the casting down of the rule of this age will happen by the lifting up of the Son of Man in the resurrection and the ascension. Now, Satan still acts in the world, despite being cast down. But he is bound with regard to being able to condemn us and to stop the spread of the gospel. Right? He says, when I'm lifted up, all nations will be drawn to me. And then he says, at the end of Matthew, Matthew 28, with the Great Commission, he says that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Christ has supreme authority. Therefore, go in my authority. Satan can no longer stop the spread of the gospel. He can deter it, but he cannot prevent it from fulfilling the mission that Christ has given to us. 
But further than that, Paul in Colossians says that Christ canceled the record of debt that stood against us, and in doing so, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So the condemnation of the adversary, the condemnation of our sin, can no longer be charged against us because all of it has been nailed to the cross. And in great irony, the great plan of Satan was to rally all the forces of evil against Christ that he might be crucified and killed. And yet, Satan doing that, accomplishing his plan, is the accomplishment of God's plan to cast Satan down and to free those under his dominion from his grasp. And you can see the sovereignty of God overwhelms the the tasks and and the things that Satan does. Satan is not an equal to God. Satan can't pull a fast one on God. But the sovereignty of God overpowers anything that Satan can do. And we see that most perfectly in the cross and the resurrection, the triumph, the humiliation of Satan and the rulers and the evil spirits that populate our world. But the way that Satan continues to tempt us now is to shield that fact from our eyes, to assume that he still has dominion over this world and over our lives. In Ephesians 2, it talks about what it is to live in the kingdom of darkness, what it is to be dead in your sins, and it is to follow the passions of the flesh, which is simultaneously following the rule of Satan. He wants us to be under his dominion by following our sinful passions, and the way he tempts us is to go back to that. That's the same way that he tempted Eve and Adam and Eve in the garden, by tempting us not to believe the word of God, by tempting us to doubt the goodness of God, and then to just seek after our own passions. That is the primary way in which he tempts us, even in this age. And so he is still lying, he's still spreading deceit. But the great hope that we have now is that we possess the very same spirit to resist Satan and to fight Satan that Christ has. The very spirit that anointed Christ also anoints and dwells in us. And there's even a promise in the book of James that if you resist Satan, he will flee. That is a great encouragement. We should not be afraid of Satan, but rather we should wage war. He is not an equal with Christ. And yet he still prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And the way he does that is very subtle. He's not hiding in a corner waiting for us to come around and he just goes, boo, to freak us out. In some ways, that might be easier because we'd at least clearly see what he's doing and we could rally against him. But if you look through the New Testament, the New Testament doesn't speak about Satan's activity in these sort of dramatic, visible ways. He speaks more subtly. In fact, this would be a good study on your own time to look through the times when Satan and the devil are mentioned in the New Testament and what activity that's attached to. I'll list a few of them. 1 Timothy 4.1. Satan tickles our ears with false doctrines and false teachers. He calls them doctrines of demons. 1 Timothy 3, 6-7, Satan ensnares young men into conceit and pride. 2 Corinthians 2, 11, Paul talks about the schemes of Satan to divide the church, to fill us with bitterness and envy and malice toward one another. These are just a few of the manifestations of Satan's activity within the church. He doesn't have to bring oppression from outside. He doesn't have to bring threats from outside. He is simply content to have the church implode 
in and on on itself by tempting the saints toward bitterness, malice, unforgiveness, and hatred towards one another. And so we have to be watchful. We have to be steadfast. We have to see Satan for who he is. He is a deceiver, and he is a liar. And he comes disguised as an angel of light. He comes disguised with smooth words and, you know, nice mannerisms. And he's kind and empathetic and all these types of things. That is how deceptive he is. Be careful that what you call love is not an invitation to false teaching and those doctrines of demons. Or that what you call discernment is really just a cover-up for your own conceit and pride and arrogance. And one of the fears of our age, and what I fear for us, is that not that we're losing this battle against Satan, but that there is no battle. That there is no sense of urgency. That there is no sense of fighting against our flesh. Fighting against the influence of Satan in the world. We're content to distract ourselves so that Satan doesn't have to do much to throw us off course. And a lot of this has to do with the prosperity of our age. Prosperity gives us the illusion of comfort. It also makes us think that the only thing that's real are physical, material things. And so the idea of Satan, again, this is stupid. This is, we, have, we don't have time for this. We got businesses to run. We got important things to do. Don't tell me that I have to fight Satan and his temptations. And yet that is exactly, again, where we are deceived the most. C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters, which is a fictional account of letters written between two demons trying to tempt this believer to turn away from God. He writes this, Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it, while really it is finding its place in him. Prosperity, you feel like things are going well. You're comfortable. Everything's going well. And in the whole time, the world is actually infecting and infiltrating you. Has Satan gained a foothold in your life through prosperity? Has comfort weakened your resolve to fight against the schemes of Satan who wants to destroy you and your family and your church? He wants to wage war against that. And if there is no battle, then we are losing. We must fight with the confidence that we have the Spirit of God with us. The Spirit of God and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We have to pray. We have to discipline our bodies. We have to meditate on Scripture, memorize Scripture. We have to engage this battle on the most basic level in our own hearts. We must fight against it within our church. We have all these weapons of warfare that God has given to us. The Spirit of God, you know, being led by the Spirit isn't primarily being told where to go move or what job you should get or who you should marry. To be led by the Spirit in Romans 8 is to put to death the deeds of the flesh. That's what it means. And that, again, that same Spirit that empowered Christ empowers us. So we can resist the devil, he will flee. We can fight against his schemes because we know who he really is. He is a defeated enemy. We don't need to fear him, but we do need to fight him. Second, Jesus came not just to plunder Satan's house, but he came to punish satanic blasphemy. Here we go. What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? 
what is this unforgivable sin? Well, maybe we should start with what it's not. What the blasphemy of the Spirit is not. First, it is not a sin that a Christian can commit. And here's why. The people that Jesus is talking to are the Pharisees. And the Pharisees aren't believers. Right? They don't follow Christ. They're the main adversaries of Christ. Also, we know from 1 Corinthians 12.3 that no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Right? So the fact that you worship Christ is a sign that you have the Spirit, that you're not going to blaspheme the Spirit. In fact, Jesus, when he rebukes the Pharisees, he says, you guys think that I'm demon-possessed. Why would Satan cast out Satan? That's a divided kingdom. And I think you can have the reverse logic. If you have the Spirit, why would you blaspheme the Spirit? If, you have, if you're part of the kingdom of light, why would you war against the kingdom of light? That doesn't make any sense. You have been sealed by the Spirit. Ephesians 1 talks about that. The Spirit is a sign that you belong to Christ. And Christ also says that he will not lose any that God has put into his hand. And so I think the very presence of the Spirit in your life is why you will not blaspheme the Spirit. In fact, if you're worried about it, you probably haven't committed it, right? That shows that you have the Spirit of God. You don't want to sin against God. You take blasphemy seriously. So I don't think it's something that Christians can commit. So everybody, take a deep breath, right? Maybe not everybody. Maybe not everybody, but if you're a Christian, take a deep breath. Second, blasphemy in the Spirit is not any critique of charismatic claims to miracles or prophecies. This is really important. There are many people peddling a false gospel underneath the guise of a, a pros- this, this prosperity gospel. Right? And they, they have all kinds of healings and miracles and all these things. And if you critique any of them, they will, they will condemn you for blaspheming the Holy Spirit. That's an improper use of this passage. Because we see all throughout the New Testament, we are to be discerning. The Apostle Paul calls out these false prophets and false teachers. In fact, in Matthew 7, 21 to 23, we hear Jesus even say that there's going to be many false Christians on the last day. They'll say, we, did, we prophesied in your name, Lord. We did miracles. We cast out demons, all this stuff. And they will be false Christians. Jesus will say, I never knew you. And so there are charlatans. There are fakers. And being skeptical of that is not blasphemy of the Spirit. In fact, we are called to expose those works of darkness. We also see that the Pharisees, they're slandering the work of the Spirit. They're calling it demonic, knowing full well that it's not. That's very different than saying, I'm skeptical of that. I think this is false teaching. They know without any doubt in their mind that this is the work of God, and yet they are so hardened in their hostility that they slander the work of the Holy Spirit. They slander Jesus Christ, and they say that he is demon-possessed. And we see the irrationality of what they're saying. This is not logic. They're not curious. They're not confused. Jesus knows their hearts. He knows what they're thinking. And he says, again, you guys are irrational. Why would Satan cast out Satan? Why would he try to plunder his own house? He even says, some of your sons cast out demons, and they will judge you. It's a very curious verse. I think what he's saying is, there are people that you know, Jews that you know who are casting out demons. We see evidence of this in Acts 19 with the sons of Sceva, that there might be these Jews who are casting out demons, and he's saying, they do it with less authority than me. Their casting out of demons is less powerful than mine. If you're going to praise them, why wouldn't you praise me? Because I cast them out with simply a word. No one's ever done what I've done. You are so hard-hearted that you, your vision is totally inverted. You're calling good evil and evil good. You are so consumed with your hatred towards me that you are blind. 
And this shows us that blasphemy of the Spirit is not a one-time event, as if you can accidentally say it and too late. Rather, it's a state of being. The Pharisees have accused Jesus of being demon-possessed multiple times. This is not the first time. So they were revealing the hardness of their heart and the repeated nature of their rejection. It's almost as if the more evidence they get, the more they double down on their resistance. That's the state of their heart. Blasphemy of the Spirit is willful slander of the work of the Spirit as demonic that reveals a heart hardened beyond repentance. And because it's hardened beyond repentance, it is hardened beyond forgiveness. That person never wants to seek forgiveness. They are so opposed to Christ, so opposed to the Spirit, they've hardened themselves into a final state. It's a terrifying reality. Now there's another curious part. Jesus says that blasphemy against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not. Why does he separate those two out? That's a really good question. I don't have a perfect answer. This is my best attempt at understanding this. I think a helpful way to see this is in terms of history. When he talks about the blasphemy of the Son of Man and the blasphemy of the Spirit, I think he's talking about the two states of Christ, the two phases of Christ's ministry. The first phase is his state of humiliation, his earthly ministry, right? When he's born of a virgin, he's doing his ministry, and ultimately he's humiliated and he's crucified. That's his state of humiliation, right? Jesus is physically testifying to himself. But then Jesus says there will be another phase when I'll be raised from the dead and I will ascend to the right hand of the Father and the Spirit will be poured out and he will testify to me. Jesus will leave, the Spirit will come and the Spirit will be the testifier to Jesus. Earthly ministry, Jesus testifies to himself. Glorified ministry, the Spirit testifies to Jesus. Those are two witnesses. In other words, what he's saying is, if you blaspheme me, if you reject me in my state of humiliation, if you reject me while I'm ministering on earth, there's another chance you will see the Spirit fall and you will know that I am who I said I am and then you can repent and you will be forgiven for rejecting me in my earthly ministry. But if you keep hardening yourself after the Spirit has fallen, if you keep hardening yourself after the Spirit's testimony, the second witness, there is no more witness after that. You've been given all the witnesses that you need. And if you harden after that, it shows that you will never come. But the more that you see the work of the Spirit, the more that you see the testimony of Christ, the more you will turn away from Him. And you see this in the book of Acts, in Acts 2. Peter preaches after Pentecost, and he's preaching to a group of Jews who were not believers, and he says this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, the Jesus whom you crucified. In other words, he says to them, You blaspheme the Son of God. You called for His crucifixion. That's on you. But now you have seen him raised in glory and you've seen the Spirit poured out. The second witness has come. And what happens after that is the Jews hear and they're cut to the heart and they repent. They're forgiven. But throughout the book of Acts, you also see Jews who continually harden their hearts toward the work of the Spirit, that second witness. At the very end of the book of Acts, Paul actually says, I'm going to turn away and now give the gospel to the Gentiles. You've rejected that second witness. You've been given everything and it just makes you even more hardened against Christ. Now, 
I think there are some things that we can draw from this. The first thing is that you shouldn't always assume you will always have the chance to repent. Don't presume upon the grace of God. If you're not a Christian here, maybe you've seen the witness of the Spirit over and over again. You've heard sermons, you've seen the Lord's Supper, you have friends, family that are Christians, you see the work of the Spirit, and you double down. That's a dangerous place to go. Don't think that you can just wait till later to follow Christ. You don't know the state of your heart at that point. You might keep hardening to the point of no return. Don't blaspheme the Spirit in your continued rejection. This is a dangerous game to play. Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. You can't be neutral toward Christ. You can't just simply appreciate it from afar. You are either his enemy or you are in him. Those are the only two categories that are available. I remember I was talking to a, it was an old pastor who after he retired, he would, you know, he would go to the gym, be in the pool, and he'd be evangelizing to old guys in the pool. He was old too. He'd be preaching the gospel to them. And I remember him telling us one time, he said, you know, the most hard-hearted people are in that pool. These are guys in their 70s and 80s, and despite seeing the fruit of their bad decisions, despite seeing the fruit of rejecting Christ, they are so hardened toward the gospel. They are so set in their rebellion. And that the more that they hear the gospel, the more hostile they are towards it. Don't let that happen to you. Don't be naive about how much your heart can harden as you reject over and over and over again the witness of the Spirit. And I would even say this. If you're not a Christian and this bothers you, that's a good sign. If you reject Christ and this bothers you, that means there's still something in you that the Spirit may be prompting you to consider. Why does that bother you? Perhaps you are being called to repent. Like those Jews who heard the message at Pentecost, that you are being called, that you have not been hardened to the point of no return. I hope you're not in that state. You have all the testimony you need. Don't presume on the grace of God. He will punish your blasphemy. Finally, Jesus came to condemn satanic words. Jesus takes this instance of blasphemy to teach on a broader principle about how our words reflect our hearts. And he says, just as a good tree gives good fruit, good fruit shows that the tree is good, so good words reveal a good heart, a transformed heart. And he uses another example, that good people bring good treasure. They bring good out of their good treasure. Evil people bring evil out of their evil treasure. The source determines the fruit. For out of the abundance of the mouth, the heart speaks. And he's saying this to the Pharisees. He's saying that you speak satanic words, and that reveals your satanic heart. And he calls them a brood of vipers. It's a pretty intense term, right? You are spawn of Satan. You are bearing a resemblance to the father of lies. And he actually calls them this again in Matthew 23, 33. He says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? And then he condemns them for rejecting all of the prophets and killing all of the prophets and having their blood on their hands. In other words, he's saying, you guys are part of Satan's kingdom that has been warring against the prophets of God since the beginning. You are on the wrong side. Remember, these are not, you know, people with dark eyeliner and tattoos and Ouija boards. These are religious, public figures 
with flowing robes and the Word of God in little boxes, who memorize the Scriptures, who teach the Scriptures, who are for traditional values and love the family and want to raise moral kids. Those are the satanic-inspired blasphemers of Christ. You can have all those things, and it means nothing without Christ. Their words reveal their ultimate allegiance. And Jesus says on Judgment Day, He will weigh all of your careless or worthless words. They will either justify or condemn you. They will either reveal a changed heart or reveal a heart that has not been changed. Right? Your words manifest the state of your heart. This is why James, the book of James, exhorts us to tame our tongues. He says the tongue is set on fire by the very fires of hell itself. That the tongue can set ablaze a whole forest with its destruction. He says that if you can master your tongue, you can master the whole body. That the tongue is a small rudder that guards, that guides a massive ship. How can you praise your God and Father and, and curse people made in the likeness of God? The tongue is a window into the heart. I remember uh, hearing a speaker once talk about, you know, he, he pulled out this uh, water bottle and the, the cap was loose and he shook it and all this water came out. And he asked the crowd, he said, why did the water come out? And the crowd said, because you shook it. And he said, let me ask another question. Why did water come out? He said, well, that was what was always inside. And he said, that's, that's how our words reflect our hearts. Right? When we are shaken by inconvenience, by trials, by our conflict with other people, what is inside spills out. What is truly in our hearts comes out. The Pharisees have been shaken by their encounter with Christ, and the vile blasphemy comes out that reveals a blasphemous heart. God will judge our words. You can say deceitful words. You can say flattery, right? These are seemingly good fruit, but God will weigh them and it will be weightless. Those words will weigh nothing, right? Because it reveals a manipulative heart with flattery. God sees through it all. Now, you might be thinking, that doesn't bode well for me because I was in traffic yesterday and I was shaken and a lot of bad stuff spewed out, right? Or I'm trying to discipline a toddler and it's not working too well and some stuff spewed out of me, right? Here's the comfort. Words are both the problem, but also they are the solution, right? The gospel not only changes the way that we speak about God, but how we speak to God. And one of the great things is when you find yourself speaking these wicked words, a heart changed by God will also speak words of confession. By your words, you can also know redemption. So a Christian with a changed heart isn't someone who always says pure words. None of us in the room is like that, right? A Christian is somebody who after they say those impure words, they go, you know what, that was wrong. Lord, and with their words you say, I repent, right? I believe the gospel. I trust you, Christ, with that sin. And then it goes to the person that you've offended and you apologize to them and ask for their forgiveness. And when you cry out to God with confession, confess means to literally speak the same word as God. When you call your sin your sin, what happens? God gives you a word of forgiveness. So by our words, we also know the glory of our redemption. So if you speak those evil words, there is hope. You can speak words of humility. Confession is, what, what is that revealing? They're humble words revealing a humble and contrite heart. And that's the very heart that God dwells with. 
In fact, the very gospel message is that for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and it's saved. The crying out of the gospel is confessing a heart. It's speaking a heart that's been transformed, that's saying, I need Christ. I can't do this. I can't forgive my own sins. I can't make up for the wrong that I've done. One word of confession can cover all those words of blasphemy. And not only that, but, but God purifies our lips so that our voices become instruments of praise. And so if you speak those words, there is a word of the gospel that you can believe and a word of confession that you can speak that can reconcile you, that can reunite you, that can bring you back and to remember the truth about who you are. Words are a problem. They are also our solution. So Jesus died and rose again to plunder Satan's kingdom, to take treasures for himself. And what is the treasure that he plunders? It's us. That he would send his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Right? He has plundered us from the dominion of Satan, not because we deserved it, but because he has set his love upon sinners, upon blasphemers. This is the scandal of this passage. This is the shocking thing that God forgives blasphemers. That despite all of the words that we speak against him, his response in love is forgiveness through Christ, through his death and resurrection. That is the thing that should shock you, that should cause you to wonder why? Why would he ever do that? And he gives us the same spirit to empower us to speak those good words, to fight against the temptations of Satan. And the promise that despite this world not being a safe world, it is a deadly world. We should not fear because the gates of hell will not prevail against the kingdom of God. And by the way, gates are defensive structures. That means that the kingdom is bringing the fight to Satan and the gates against God are collapsing. So keep fighting with the courage and the assurance that God is with you, that he has won that victory, and you can walk in that, and with that confidence, fight those daily battles with your tongue, the daily battles with your flesh, and against all the evil in the world. And for those who don't know Christ, this is an invitation to follow, to be brought out of the kingdom of darkness into light. Don't let your blasphemies and your careless words be the final word on your life. Let Christ be the final word. Let's pray.